Hello and welcome to the Dairy Dialogue podcast, number 52, and welcome to October. I missed an opportunity last week by not tying podcast 51 in with Area 51 in Nevada, but too late for that now and I'm not really sure how I would have linked them anyway. Having said that, it's not too late to subject you all to some of the weird celebration days in October. I'm Jim Cornall, editor of Dairy Reporter, and for some strange reason, a week ago, somebody actually said that they really look forward to the first podcast of the month for the strange days. So, if one person likes it, that's good enough for me. Of course, we won't keep going after December, because then I'd just be repeating myself. Not that that's ever really stopped me before. Before I launch into them, I must remind myself this is a dairy podcast, so I'll tell you what's coming up for interviews, and maybe then you won't fast forward. On this week's Dairy Dialogue podcast, we talk to Friesland Campina Ingredients about two recent launches at the FI Asia event, and we have two interviews about the OP2B Biodiversity Coalition. We also have our weekly look at the global dairy markets with Liam Fenton from INTL FC Stone. From Friesland Campina Ingredients, we talk to Vicky Davis, Global Senior Marketing Director, Performance and Active Nutrition, about the Nutri Way Clear launch at FI Asia, and Luke Steinfeller, Business Development Lead, Food Service Asia, about the company's Milcap launch. And on the One Planet Business for Biodiversity, or OP2B, coalition between 19 food and beverage companies and the World Business Council for Sustainable Development, I talked to Diane Holdorf, Managing Director, Food and Nature of the WBCSD, and Beth Newhart over in the US spoke with Chris Adamo, VP of Federal and Industry Affairs at Danone North America, and Michael Newworth, Senior Director of External Communications at Danone North America, one of the companies in the coalition. You'd think we actually planned this. And now to October's silliness. For some unfathomable reason, it's Vegetarian Month, Seafood Month and Ham Month. So I'm not quite sure how it can be all those three things at the same time. October the 3rd was Virus Appreciation Day. I've no idea why or whether indeed it's the bag of DNA kind or the ones on your computer. Neither of which is really that pleasant. The following day is National Smile Day, so that's today, presumably because it's no longer Virus Day. Anyway, connecting this somehow to dairy, the 9th is Mouldy Cheese Day, and I wonder why again. I have to say I like the 10th because it's Hug a Drummer Day, but it won't happen. Maybe I'll just go and hug my drums instead. The 12th is National Frustration Day. I mean, come on. The 13th is Skeptics Day, or is it? And then I'm proud to say the 14th is Bald and Free Day. I get the bald bit, but I'm not sure about the free part. Maybe free from hair. I always want to pretend to complain when I go to a hotel that I'm really offended that they put shampoo in my room and that it gives me a complex for being bald. Ironically, that is also dessert day, so does it get any better, bald and desserts at the same time? A week later, the 21st, is another day when I should have a holiday, which is babbling day, and that's probably enough for another month. Next week I will be freshly back from Anuga in Germany, one of the busiest events I've ever been to. And if you ever wondered what Anuga means, or even if you didn't, it's Allgemeine Nahrungs- und Genussmittelausstellung, which means General Food and Drink Exhibition. So now you know. So maybe we will have some interviews from Anuga for you for next week, and I won't say it in German again. And that's if anyone will talk to me at the event. 
I haven't had a lot of communications from companies attending, unlike events like Vita Foods, where by February I've already got about 15 interviews set up. So we shall see. Regardless, it's always good to be in Cologne. And to welcome me personally, the weather looks like it has been especially imported in from Scotland just for me. So rain for four days. I can't escape it. I know when I went to Gulf Food in Dubai earlier in the year, they get rain about two days a year, and I arrived on one of them. Before we launch into the first interview, let's have a quick look at some of the news in the dairy industry this week, which you can read on dairyreporter.com, should you so wish. We had our monthly roundup of new products for September. Niso in the Netherlands has a new CEO, Jeroen Kort. Lactali is celebrating 20 years of organic milk in Spain, and Saudi dairy and juice company Almarai has received a $100 million EBRD loan. Speaking of the Middle East, we also had a feature on two of the dairy companies in the United Arab Emirates. Rabobank's latest report looks at the current state of the dairy industry with the potential for a recession in late 2020, and in the UK, Müller is looking into its Scottish milk surplus. German dairy cooperative Hochwald is targeting on-the-go and convenience dairy trends, and entries for the World Cheese Awards later this month in Bergamo, Italy, have hit record numbers, more than 3,000, with Japanese cheese allowed into the event for the first time due to EU regulations. Hopefully in a few weeks I'll have some coverage from that event as well. Speaking of the EU, the WTO came out in favour of the US in an aviation argument, which meant that the US is imposing retaliatory tariffs on EU goods, which, as well as the aviation industry, also targets European dairy exports, which will mostly be hit with a 25% tariff. And so we move on to this week's guests. FI Asia has just taken place in the wonderful and very warm city of Bangkok in Thailand, a place where I once had to prove that my camera was not, in fact, an incendiary device when I was taking photos of one of the country's princesses. At FI Asia, Friesland Campina Ingredients launched two new products, and I talked to Vicky Davis, Global Senior Marketing Director, Performance and Active Nutrition, about the Nutri Way Clear launch, and Luke Steinvella, Business Development Lead, Food Service Asia, about the company's Milkap launch. And much as we tried, juggling time zones and schedules, we couldn't get everyone together at the same time, so it's two separate interviews. First we'll hear from Vicky, and then it's over to Luke. So how was the FIE event in Bangkok? Did it go well? Yes, it was a really nice event. It was also the first time for me to visit this type of event uh, in Asia. Yeah, So I've been to, to, to North America and Europe usually for these type of events. So it was uh, it was really nice on the to meet new customers. We did meet quite quite a lot of new customers. I think we had a very high footfall to the booth. I think we had 250 visitors, and I think we met at least 60 or 70 new customers. Just had discussions with them, and for me also, it's nice to see the, the the setup of the event. It's very interactive. There's a lot of cooking and smells, and and really this kind of vibrancy around. Uh, the food ingredients side, but bringing it to life. You don't see that so much in the European events, but here they're really cooking with the with the things or incorporating them into concepts that you can taste um, and try out. So that I think was really nice. And we we also did some of that at our booth as well, from the, the, the beverages and drinks side as well. But uh, what struck me, I think, about this event was that it's really there's smells everywhere and it's really vibrant. 
I did I gave a small presentation as well on um on one of the days on one of our new launches, which I, I know we'll talk about. So the the Nutri-Ray Isolate Clear. Even then, just giving the giving the the presentation and the overview because it was something new. There was a lot of questions, and then a lot of people come to the the booth and they're interested. And you could see that happening with with many things. I think they set it up well in that respect, so that the event would create that kind of environment as well. Yeah, sp- speaking of the new product, what is the new product? Is it specifically for the Asian market? The protein, so it's it's called Nutri-Way Isolate Clear. So it's a whey protein. The protein content of the ingredients really high, so it's 90%. Um, and what's unique about it is that it, you can put it into clear drinks, so like water. So you can have a protein-based water, so water that's very high in protein, so maybe a normal... 500 ml bottle of water you can you can get up to 20 grams of protein into that which the normal format for for protein carrying that amount usually currently is is bars or yogurt so this is giving a different format for people to engage in in protein Proteins become very interesting i think for people to see a lot of nutritional benefits around as seen as healthy um but you see that what uh, kind of people who have take an active lifestyle who are doing some sports they're used to eating bars and taking some protein in, but it's like another format for that. So this gives them the opportunity to have a water-based format or a clear drink with that in it. We developed it for the for the global market because this is a big trend that you see um, around the world. Uh, so beverages, but also protein and taking care of better of your nutrition. Um, and for the Asian market, what we do is, um, as we do for other markets, is, is adapt that in terms of applications and taste um, and you know, because different countries have different palates and like different flavors um, and tastes as well. So what we've done is done some different application suggestions and flavor suggestions that can resonate with the local market. And I, I assume when you, as well as being clean label, it probably has very little taste to it. Yeah, so it has a very neutral taste overall. So that's really good for the customers because then they can put whatever taste that they like on it. A clear whey based, whey protein based drinks or whey protein in general, when you treat it like this, can can be a little bit um, astringent. You know, kind of this bit of sourness on the on the mouth. But this, um, because of the technology that we've used to develop it, means that it's it's not so astringent. So it has a, a more much more neutral taste. Which also resonates then better, of course, with the with the consumers at the end of the day. And I suppose in Asia, the sky's the limit because of the number of different countries and the different tastes and the different regional variations. Yeah, indeed. And I mentioned clear drinks, but there's also clear kind of gels. So there's a a lot of the kind of sporting community at the moment will will have these kind of gel pouches where they they were using mostly for carbohydrates, so for sugar or energy after running a marathon or or doing an exercise. And you see in Asia, that's also uh, a big trend. You see that gels and that type of format is very interesting for them. So we also look at that type of application there. And with the clean label, as you mentioned, I mean, this ingredient, and we we had a sample at the booth of of a clear drink. I mean, there's only this plus the flavoring as an ingredient within it. So that's really nice. It's very stable um, on the shelf, but indeed it gives that clean label that consumers and customers are looking for. And I suppose when you enter a new market with a product, your customers may come up with solutions that you might not even have thought of. Yeah, and that's that's really exciting for us. And what we like to do is work with customers so we can share the technology and some of the, you know, help them with maybe some of the technical challenges that they might find with it because it's a new ingredient. But then also, you know, investigating with them all the different ways that it can be used and learning from them as well.
What was the reaction like there to the product? Overall, really, it was it was great. It was better than we expected. I think we know that we've got something really good in our hands. You know, that's that way from a technical perspective and from a taste. Um, and it's really nice then to see when people taste it and then they try to understand what it can deliver. I mean, you really wouldn't think that this is a drink that has that much protein in it because it has a really good taste. It's very clear um, and it's not like it doesn't have anything. It really is. It has the fluidity of water. Yeah. So it doesn't add any thickness at all to the to the drink at all. So it was really well received. And we have a lot of interest from customers now who, who uh, want to trial it um, and see if they how they can incorporate it into their products or even and even develop a, a new line of products because of what they've seen. So you were at the FI Asia event. Was it a good one? It was uh, great. Yeah. Um, so we uh, we as Frisland Company Ingredients uh, we launched our um, our new company brand. Uh, next to that, we launched some exciting products, and, and we got a lot of traction on, on all of it. So uh, yes, I was very uh, very happy. Okay. And I guess you're responsible for the new product, the Milcap product. Is that something that's available just in Asia, or is it a global launch? Well, we launched it uh, in, in a few countries in Asia now, and then we're rolling it out uh, country by country here in Southeast Asia. Um, this uh, development is really focusing on the trend of, uh, of milk tea. Uh, it's a trend that started uh, in, in China and in Taiwan uh, already some time ago, and it's a few years ago it, it uh, became a trend here in Southeast Asia and now it's really booming and it's uh, getting uh, huge. Um, this milk cap product is, is uh, a way to make in a very convenient uh, way yeah, a milk cap, a, a, a macchiato or a cheese tea layer on, on tea or, or on other um, uh, concepts. So yes, uh, it, we, we launched it here uh, because here is where the market uh, is, where the market trend is. And is the product designed for things like food service and restaurants, or is it to be sold to the end consumer? Um, the product is primarily um, focusing at the food service channel. So uh, we are focusing on uh, milk tea shops, coffee shops, but also convenience stores, uh, QSRs, quick service restaurant uh, channels, other channels that uh, need um, versatile and convenient ingredients. And we do that um, uh, together with partners, uh, together um, to enrich uh, that part of the market with our uh, concepts. And is the product a powder? The product is a powder. It's, it's an instant uh, uh, product. You only need to add water or milk or any other fluid or any other liquid, um, stir for, for a while, and ready it is. So that's, that's a convenient part. The trend of having a, a, a wide layer, a, a cheese tea layer or a macchiato layer or a milk cap uh, on tea or other drinks, that is really uh, big here in Southeast Asia. But it's a nightmare uh, for the operators sometimes because the way of operation is often that you mix uh, several ingredients, also liquid ingredients, have to whip it for a long time uh, with a big chance on, on, on failure costs, a uh, big time of, of waste, a uh, big chance on waste. We are uh, the first one who made it uh, instant, so it's easy to uh, store, easy to ship, and very, very easy to operate. And so the flavor part of this would be the responsibility of the food service establishment or the restaurant or whoever it's being used by? 
second, and that, that's where the versatility comes in. So uh, if you um, use our powder um, and you add uh, water or milk or a fruit juice or, or anything, that already has a big impact on the, um, uh, on the, on the taste direction. Uh, next to that, it's very easy to also add a bit of a syrup or another uh, flavor uh, substance to tailor um, the milk cap towards the needs of, of the concepts uh, where, where it is used. So it's, it's a very versatile base. So you must be doing a lot of research into the trends and the various markets in that region. Uh, yes, we did. Uh, we did um, uh, some consumer studies. Uh, we also did uh, some in-depth interviews with uh, operators. Uh, we did um, consumer group uh, discussions, focus group discussions. Uh, we did online research. So yes, we spent also quite a lot of uh, time and efforts to really understanding the needs of this market and really understanding the, the needs of the consumers, but also the needs and the pains of the operators to come up with the, the best product. Yeah. And I would imagine even within Asia and even within countries within Asia, there are very different sub-markets to them all. Absolutely. You, you see that um, that also on taste-wise, uh, but also the, what channels um, are popular, um, what type of, of, of uh, consumption patterns. Um, there is a lot of variety in Southeast Asia. It's definitely um, every country and even sometimes every city has this specifics, this needs. However, um, the, the whole milk tea uh, shop culture, it's, it's booming everywhere. So uh, yes, there are differences and there are commonalities among the Southeast Asian countries. And is this a product that, or you launched this for several other countries, is this something that you will be continuing to roll out in other countries around that region? Uh, yes, exactly. Uh, so we uh, launched it in, in the Philippines. It's, it's available here uh, since a few months. Um, we are rolling it out um, now to Thailand, to Vietnam, and soon also to, um, to other countries. And of course, we are uh, monitoring the trends in, uh, globally. When the time is there, uh, definitely we will launch it also outside South Asia. And does that include beyond Asia, or is it more specifically just for the Asian market? Uh, at this moment, uh, the market is, is booming in, um, in Southeast Asia. What we see is, is more and more that trends uh, in food and beverages are uh, originated in Asia rather than in, in let's say, the, the original Western world. Uh, I think 10, 20 years ago it was the other way around. Uh, now definitely um, the milk tea trend is, is expanding um, outside Asia as well. So um, yes, we, we expect a, a future also outside Asia for this concept. Now we move over to the OP2B coalition of 19 companies who have partnered with the World Business Council for Sustainable Development. OP2B stands for One Planet Business for Biodiversity and the goal is to protect and restore biodiversity. The chair of the coalition is the CEO of Danone, Emmanuel Faber, and Beth Newhart spoke with Chris Adamo, VP of Federal and Industry Affairs at Danone North America, and Michael Newworth, Senior Director of External Communication at the company. A lot of this is coming from a place that is, I, I think, a really important kind of historical evolution here of these sorts of issues for agriculture and for the land sector, right? So just number one, obviously, you know, Danone and many other companies have been 
very engaged in the climate debate overall, um, stemming back to, I think, you know, for, for many years, but some of the big milestone years, 2015, 2016, Paris Agreement, uh, companies like us taking on what's called a science-based target, which is a 30% greenhouse gas reduction by 2030, uh, a commitment to be carbon neutral by 2050. And when we take on those kind of commitments, we're looking at our supply chain, which is obviously uh, includes our farmers. So we have to be working with our farmers and engaging with them to, to really be thinking about, you know, taking on the challenge of climate change and also, you know, working with them to make sure that they're economically resilient and strong. So that's just a quick, quick backdrop. I mean, obviously, there's been a lot more focus on agriculture and the land sector deforestation over the last, I'd, I'd argue, last three to four years, but even this year in particular with uh, the IPCC report that came out uh, with a focus on the land sector and then clearly what's going on in places like the Amazon right now. So, I, you know, I think it's just important to kind of keep all that in mind. There's been a, a very, a lot of steps being taken by a lot of different folks um, thinking about how uh, agriculture and, and various parts of the land sector can become solutions for climate change. So, um, and you probably saw last week at UNGA and throughout Climate Week that, you know, the, there's a lot of different phrases for this, but I like to use the one as one our global CEO used, nature-based solutions, uh, as you know, thinking about nature as a form of solution for climate change. And that, that really, you know, for us is what farms can do as stewards on their land. So um, anyway, so what that means for dairy, um, you know, again, a lot of this we've pre-announcement have already been very engaged um, with those commitments. But, you know, take a look at the U.S., for example, with our soil health initiative that we launched in March 2018, and I get the question a lot, you know, why soil health when you all are a dairy company? Well, clearly a lot of row crop and feed from those row crops go to our dairy. So the fields are really an opportunity to do strong soil health work that can bring the benefits of, you know, things like carbon sequestration, improve water biodiversity, and, and frankly, economic uh, resiliency as well. So we're really looking at soil health as one uh, key strategy to bring climate results in, but also really helping our farms push along and become, you know, stronger economically and more resilient. So that that is really, I'd argue, one of the biggest steps forward and biggest pieces of impact for, for dairy farms and us, and that kind of partnership around soil health is a huge opportunity. Um, the soil health work or regenerative agriculture work um, with our dairy farms around how they're growing their feed is, is really, I think, what, where we've been focusing a vast majority of our attention, um, you know, both in Europe and in the U.S. So the U.S. initiative is, is probably one of our strongest examples of that. I'll give you another quick example. I mean, there's three pillars under this initiative, obviously, regenerative agriculture, uh, crop diversity, and then deforestation as well. Um, we've had an anti or, or committing to ending deforestation in our supply chain commitment for a number of years now, stemming back to 2014. And this is in some ways just doubling down on that. Um, you know, one example of how our dairy farms help contribute a solution for that is that in the U.S., Canada, and Europe, our dairy farms are, are not buying soy, for example, from uh, risky areas such as the Amazon. So they're, you know, our U.S. farms, for example, are, are um, you know, in many cases, buying uh, U.S. soy, for example. So that's another way that we're already committed and, and uh, engaged on that, this particular component of the initiative. Can you kind of outline exactly what this coalition plans to do? I mean, you kind of went over the three pillars, but, you know, it, it had the announcement just last week 
what are the first steps? What, how is everyone going to come together? What's going to happen? Yeah, so I think the main uh, pillar in terms of process and next steps is the companies working over the next year to develop uh, their own individual action plans or strategies that they can take on. So obviously it's going to look a little different for each company depending on their supply chains and, and just how they work overall. Um, and the idea is that each company will come back and present publicly these work plans or strategies uh, at the, uh, and I apologize, I may screw up the, the proper name, but the Biodiversity COP in China, which I believe is September 2020. Uh, I mean, this was very much led by our global CEO, Emmanuel Faber, and uh, I believe, I don't know the exact time that the idea was formulated in his head, but uh, I believe some outreach to other companies uh, with our VP, uh, Vice President of Nature, Eric Subaron, may have started uh, early this year, and I think over the last couple months really started to come together, but it was really personal outreach on behalf of uh, our leadership to these other companies that helped bring this together. I think, obviously, um, a key partner in this is the uh, World Business Sustainability. And um, just to elaborate a little bit on what Chris said, um, the, the idea for the private sector uh, uh, or a coalition of private sector companies that had um, significant exposure in their business to agriculture, um, the, the idea was, it was actually a request that came from the President of France to our CEO to please form and lead a coalition. And that happened at some point last year. It's certainly not a closed coalition, and, you know, it's organized and led by Danone with WBCSD, but the intent is that those industry partners with exposure in ag um, across different sectors, as well as that ha can help us in, in ag-related issues, a company like technology-driven Google are welcome to express their interest to join. And on the OP2B website, there is a, a place for companies to submit their interest. You mentioned that, you know, the U.S. is kind of ahead in these, you know, regenerative agriculture practices, preservation, biodiversity. So is the rest of the world kind of looking to us or looking to North America to improve or, or do I have that wrong? But I think what's important is that there is not one sector or not one region of the world that needs to do one thing versus the other. I don't think this is, I just want to make clear that this isn't about one area, you know, taking leadership. I mean, we need this kind of work, frankly, all over. And it may look different in different places, obviously. Uh, you know, farmers, small sale farmers in, uh, you know, pick your favorite part of the world are going to be very different than U.S. farmers. So I think the important thing for us from a North American standpoint is that we develop a strategy that works for U.S. farmers and, and really, you know, try and lead with our, uh, suppliers as best we can. And we're really early stage of that. I mean, we're about you know, just over a year and a half into our effort here in the U.S. You know, we've got uh, roughly approximately, I think, 30 farms and just under 50,000 acres enrolled in our direct in our supply chain. So, you know, that's clearly a, uh, not everybody uh, in our supply chain. We have a lot more to go. But as you know, with a lot of farm work, if we can find some model farms to really start producing results, we think we can demonstrate to others that there's both an economic and an environmental case to, to doing some of this regenerative agri work, uh, which again may look different for a dairy in the west of the U.S. versus a dairy that's say in the upper uh, wetter upper Midwest. So, 
you know, we're, we're taking a look across a number of different regions in the U.S. to see what soil health and what regenerative ag looks like and what the opportunities are. And hopefully we can, you know, have some good data in the coming years to make the case to more that this is a smart thing to do. And I think, you know, there's clearly other companies and other, other efforts abound doing similar things. But, um, you know, I think part of this initiative is really taking an inner look at ourselves and seeing what we can do to lead more. Now that we've heard from Danone, we turn our attention to Diane Holdorf, Managing Director, Food and Nature of the World Business Council for Sustainable Development. We're working with over 200 leading businesses to create change at a system level and to help ensure that sustainable businesses perform better and are recognized for doing so. And so we're working across a couple of very big systems. We have a program on climate and energy. We have a program on transportation, mobility, and the built environment. We have a program on people and the sustainable development goals. We have a program that sits at the heart of much of what we do called redefining value, which really gets to this heart of how our companies reporting and valued for uh, by the, the investor and accounting, com- accounting communities, investor communities for their work across sustainability and externalities. And then there's also the Food and Nature Program, which is the program that I lead. And here we're working to lead the food system transformation because we have a bit of a crisis with ensuring that we have enough healthy food within the planetary boundaries for a healthy planet. And also to address the issues of nature and biodiversity loss. So that, that is a very high level, what we do here at WBCISD and, and companies join us because we're working on, on three primary things. One is the types of leadership standards and protocols and guidance that these companies implement but that help others follow and do the same. We work on the types of pre-competitive collaborative work that allows companies to have more impact at scale. And we also help to frame the policy asks that companies can use to create the right enabling environments for some of these things to move forward. We don't, we're not a lobbying organization, we're not an industry association for that purpose, but we do interact with the UN agencies and, and different governments in the context of the global events such as the climate cops and the biodiversity cops and the nutrition summits and things like that. And it's helpful to have business be able to show leadership to give sort of courage and backing to those governments and at the same time say, yes, we actually do need carbon pricing, you know, that kind of stuff. You mentioned the big companies and I wondered how agile are some of those big companies when it comes to being able to make quick decisions and to make quick changes that would have positive effects in this area? So they tend to have more resources who are working on the implementation, the the leadership and the implementation of these things throughout the total business to really embed it into how they operate. Smaller companies are way more agile and can be much faster, but either they've embedded it into how they're doing their business or for them to have the resources to commit to how how those shifts get created in a way that is collaborative so that they can then implement, just simply it's a resource challenge. And of course, not all small medium enterprise companies have sustainability at the heart of what it is they're trying to do. 
I know that many companies already have plans in place with 2030 plans and long-term 2050 plans. Are they able to do things in the short term? Because in the news all the time, we're hearing about deforestation, forest fires, loss of habitat, melting ice caps, that kind of thing. Well, I think companies are already working very actively against those long-term targets. So you have to have something that you're working towards but implementation is key. And so that's what we see within our members is true action against decarbonizing the value chains, ensuring to the extent that they can that they're um, deforestation free. But what we're seeing is that within their own direct supply chains, there's a lot of action that they can take. How that then slows the tide beyond their direct supply chain across the broader value chain has so many other factors. And this is where the issues of government enforcement and help support management around illegality and creating the enabling environments for the right types of investments becomes really important. So I think if there's one thing that we've learned is just having companies begin to quickly execute against those commitments in their own operations and drug supply chains, frankly, it's important, but it isn't, it isn't creating the tipping point that's actually needed right now. And that's why we need to expand that work and, and engage others more directly. And I guess with a lot of these big companies, they're not just in one place. They have the issues of having to deal with operations in many different countries. I, you know, I think that's one of the unique roles that businesses can and must play is unique from business. They are cross-border entities. So they, they can drive the types of standards through their own operations that helps create different levels of performance within countries. However, if those levels aren't being upheld within those countries with other players, it creates uh, competitive challenges. It also creates reputation challenges for those businesses. And I guess some countries have already brought in legislation on packaging. We already have a lot of information on there for the consumer, but some countries have introduced packaging information that relates to carbon footprints. Do you think that that's something that we're moving towards as well? Transparency is super important and businesses, all, at least the ones we work with, all are very committed to that and agree with that. There's The challenges come up is when the on-label requirements are different because, of course, as you'll be familiar, living here in Europe, countries same products that go into multiple countries, and there are multiple languages on their packs and other things. So if the rules are different from what needs to be unpacked, that creates huge challenges. So the desire to have consistency is really important. The other factor is that in order to have that level of transparency, we need access to better data and digitalization and scaling of technology. In order for that to be implemented at scale, again, it's something that often goes beyond a single company's supply chain. And I know today when we're talking about sustainability and climate change, there seems to be a lot of increased scrutiny of people's travel. So things like meetings at the United Nations and jetting all around the world for meetings in the Canadian election right now, for example, all of the candidates are under scrutiny for the travel arrangements that they're all making. Is this something that you're taking into consideration as well? Yeah, absolutely. So two very specific things. One is when there are in-person meetings, they're done together and other aligned to other events where many of the members will be already participating, such as 
meetings in New York last week during the UN General Assembly when almost all the members were there. But the other part is that most of them are happening via tele and video conference. It's both an environmental impact and a budget impact and a time impact. So we need to build the relationships. We need to build the work plan quickly. But we need to be really smart in how we're doing that. And are plant-based products high on the agenda for sustainability reasons? Well, I think there's two things at play. One is consumer preference and awareness. That's definitely driving significant opportunities in the area of plant-based. I'd say particularly in the U.S., I would say North America and Europe. You know, we have to always be careful in, in drawing statements that are global in these areas. <laughs> But from a consumer standpoint, there are cultures where plant-based foods have always been the leading factor and continue to be and grow. And then there are others where that is becoming much more of a, a, a consumer demand and an opportunity to further shape that demand. The other piece is plant-based foods have improved environmental footprints and health footprints, but it's not always just very simple. These are there's, there's complexity behind that. So we need to be careful not to draw simple conclusions, but there's real reasons for both healthy people and a healthy planet to be moving towards plant-based diets. It's important to be aware of the complexity. It's important to be working to improve. And it's important to be thinking through what these transitions mean, actually, for, for farmers and the producers who are behind these ingredients. We're talking about huge shifts in the food system and we need to be really aware of the implications along that total value chain. Yeah, that's right. And I know at the beginning we were talking about how big companies have the capacity to change, but we also have to realize that that also affects change all the way down the line to the farmer level. Absolutely. And so this one of the things that launched last week in um, the UN General Assembly events also is called the Just World Transition. While it's not part of One Planet Business for Biodiversity, it's another area that WBCSD is involved with. And it's really about how do we create a, a, a transition that is just and equitable for farmers in rural communities. I know when we talk about things like deforestation and increased land use for human activity, those are things that have already gone a certain distance. Is there an effort on behalf of the companies to do things like reforestation and reclaiming habitat, that kind of thing? Yeah. And in the context of One Planet Business for Biodiversity's commitments around enhancing the management and the restoration and the protection of high-value natural ecosystems, I think there's work that some of the member companies already have underway, but the whole reason of making that one of the three pillars of work is because there's a much greater opportunity to do that in a collective fashion than what's already been undertaken. I think collectively there's been work to help halt land conversion and deforestation, but this opportunity to be more collective around the restoration and protection of these high-value natural ecosystems is, is work for the coalition to get after together. And does the work of the coalition extend to things like uses of herbicides and pesticides, uh, that kind of thing? Well, one of the framing expectations that makes One Planet Business for Biodiversity unique is that it is really working on protecting and promoting diversity within natural ecosystems and reducing the excessive or inappropriate synthetic agricultural chemical inputs. So it, it is uniquely focused on that use of synthetic inputs 
and how we help to expand biodiversity both at the farm level, but then in the, in the farm area level, but also then into the product and portfolio ingredient material bases with that approach. There are 19 companies in there right now. Are you looking to expand or are you open to expansion of that group? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. We expect that it will continue to grow. But this is a coalition for those working at the cutting edge who are looking at solutions for biodiversity that don't include synthetic agricultural chemical inputs. How do we, it's not that they don't include it, but how do we begin to move away from the dependence on that? What are the types of solutions that can be scaled and brought to bear and innovations that can be created for that space? You know, there's, a, there's an important role for all inputs that we have today in transforming agricultural and land-based systems, but this group is uniquely focused on what is it at the front end of that that helps us move away from the synthetic. So there are some companies for whom that's going to really resonate because it's part of their work already, and there are some who will work who won't be who won't this won't be the right fit for right now, but are still working to transform agricultural practices in other ways. And I know earlier you mentioned transparency. Are the members of the group sharing technology and information within the group? And secondly, beyond that, are they open to sharing and helping companies that aren't a part of the group in order to move this forward? Absolutely. So one of the things that the One Plan and Business for Biodiversity has committed to is creating a compendium of systemic, meaningful, and measurable solutions that can be implemented, but making that public. So it's not just what are we talking about and doing inside, but how are we being very clear about what our intentions are and how we drive that in a consistent and measurable way. And then by COP15 next year, the CBD COP in China, making sure that that comes forward with time-bound, measurable commitments around which action will be progressing so that there can be documented progress. And now it's time for our weekly look at the global dairy markets with Liam Fenton from INTL FC Stone. Butter prices this week uh, continued under pressure. Uh, Market participants um, would probably mainly point at the EU-US tariff issue uh, as causing this softening in prices. Uh, the fact that there could be a 25% tariff on dairy products uh, being exported to the US from Europe, uh, basically in retaliation for the Airbus uh, plane supports, um, which came through in the WTO decision, is seen as bearish for butter. Quarter four was back about 90 euros to 35.60 level. Quarter one was down about the same uh, to 36.20 level. Quarter two dropped from 37.75 last week to 36.90 level this week. Gimmel powder dropped uh, 25 euros to 23.50 in quarter four, but quarter one and quarter two was up, up about 15 to 20 euros with quarter one trading around 23.90, 2400 level and quarter two trading around 2400 level. So pretty flat uh, for the beginning of next year. This was probably prompted, this strength was probably prompted by the O'Neill tender where prices are rumoured to be about $2,700 for around 20,000 tonnes cost and freight in the skim milk powder. Whey was also up about €25 to the 700 level. That's great. Thanks, Liam. We'll talk to you again next week. INTL FC Stone provides risk management and margin hedging programs and services, as well as OTC hedging tool and M&A advisory services to the global dairy industry. 
And next week I will have just returned from Anuga, hopefully with lots of interviews for the show and any stories from the event that are worth telling. I've already got my umbrella in the suitcase, as well as a load of cables and plugs and bits of equipment that always get tangled. So, have a great week ahead, talk to you next time, and thanks for listening.